Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Peace, everyone, and welcome to the Edible Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa L. Jones, broadcasting live from the lobby of The Line, D.C. This podcast is where dynamic people of color in the food and agricultural space share their personal food journeys, passions, and perspectives that stem from the land, all exemplifying the spirit of activism in their own edible way. Let's get started. Peace, everyone, and welcome to the Edible Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa L. Jones, broadcasting live from the lobby of the line DC here on Full Service Radio. So for today's show, food is not linear, okay? I know many of you guys know that, and there are so many angles in which we can talk about food and use it. Probably eat it. I don't know if it's linear when you eat it, too. For some folks, yes. For some, no. Um, but, you know, we... When we talk about food, you know, we talk about it in respect to advocacy, policy, wellness, healing, emotions, you name it. But there's also artistry. So in studio today, I have Crystal Mack, who is a talented Baltimore-based culinary artist, creative consultant, entrepreneur, writer, self-taught baker, and activist who uses food as a vehicle for storytelling, cultural exchange, and community building. She's launched multiple brands and concepts over the years, including Karma Pop, Pie Cycle, Black Market, and Black Sugar, which we'll get into just at the top of the show. Crystal's accolades and features include, but not limited to, because if you Google this girl, she comes up all <laughs> over the daggone place, okay? So she's participated in the Icon Dinner at the James Spirit House, has been named a woman to watch by the Baltimore Sun and Cherry Bomb 100 by Cherry Bomb Magazine as a food industry change agent. Welcome to the show, Crystal. Hi, thank you for having me, Melissa. I am, first of all, dedication because she <laughs> hopped on the Mark train from Baltimore to D.C., okay? All right? Yeah, look, it's right around the corner. <laughs> it is right around the corner. Yes. I just appreciate your commitment to oh, being here on the you. show. Um, I've been following you for quite some time. We were just talking about a mutual friend of ours, yeah. Lita, who we're going to shout out on the show, who I miss dearly, was saying, you have to have Crystal on the show. I was like, I oh. want Crystal on the show. So I was following you even before that. And oh. I was just like, she's going to be on the show. So you're here. I'm here. I'm happy. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. This is one of the conversations um I feel like I've been looking forward to for quite some time. Oh, my goodness. As soon as you asked me, I was like, yes, absolutely, yes. Brings me so much joy. Okay, so we are going to um, just unpack um, your culinary artistry just a bit. Um, Definitely want you to define what you feel like your role in food is as a culinary artist and what that means to you and what you want that to mean to everyone else. When you say that, when you when someone hears those words, um, well, first first and foremost, it's so funny. I think that when I think about my experience and like everything that I'm doing right now, I I like to always joke with people and say like, what you see is happening in real time. Like all of this is happening in real time. Yes, um, and things are constantly changing. So I find myself, you know, trying to not be resistant to that change and kind of flowing and moving with it. So that being said, when I was thinking about how I fit into the context of, you know, what I wanted my work to be and who I was in the industry, in the food industry, in a sense, I knew I didn't want to be a a traditional business owner any longer. I knew I did not identify with the very, um, in my opinion, very colonized view of what a chef is. I knew I didn't want to wear the like chef hat, right? I knew I wasn't expecting myself to traditionally be in a kitchen, um, serving dinners, you know, every night, whatever, um, and curating a menu in that way. So I started to think more about um, using food as a tool for deeper conversations um, and really um, having more of an experiential connection to the food that we were consuming and making ourselves think a little bit more about what we're consuming. And I started to think of using food as an art form, and then I 
kind of locked on to the idea of a culinary artist as a culinary artist. Um, but as I mentioned, everything happens in real time. So over time, the more I explore the, um, the differences of my practice and the things that I do and the communities that I connect and build with, I started to realize, actually, this is more of a social design practice. Mm. This is more of a social design practice that uses food as a tool for conversations and change. Um, social design being, you know, thinking about food as a social design tool, it is one of the largest social design tools, you know. When we think about, like, futurescaping and how societies are built and evolved and where people take up root and take up home and even in the, you know, development of D.C. and yes. thinking about food access and things and of that nature, I think we forget that food plays such a huge role. And if you think about um, change... About to hit my little Adrian Marie Brown emergence. All on right, y'all. girl. All right, girl. <laughs> Maybe think about changing fractals. You know, like everything in a smaller scale can, like, you know, in a larger scale always replicates. Excuse me, smaller scale replicates down up to a larger scale. So, everything that we see happening in a larger scale around us, it's like, wow, this is actually also happening in a very small local level. Right. So, what does that look like? You know. Um, so for me, being in Baltimore, being a Baltimore native and seeing all of the change that's been happening, especially since the uprising, you know, I, I started to see how food was playing a role and my place in that as a food maker at the time and as a business owner at the time. Um, and that's really kind of what transformed my, my path with food. Um, and my relationship to food and my relationship as a black woman to food, as a Baltimorean to food. Um, so yeah, yes, culinary artists at some point I did identify as that, but I guess now, and another reason I guess it is more fluid is because I try to not fit into labels too much because it's not really anything that I feel, um, I feel like labels can be restricting, um, but I also think that labels at the end of the day kind of do make you understand or re-examine what it is exactly you're doing and does that fall into what would be normally perceived to be a part of that category, right? Um, so yes. Culinary artist, yes, I am. But also, I definitely think my work um, is more of like a social design practice based in food. That's awesome. <laughs> um, let's get into, just for a bit, because yeah. um, some of the stuff, like I said, you guys can Google Crystal. And you, you can learn a lot about <laughs> Crystal online. Uh, but definitely want to um, just briefly touch on some of the past uh, culinary entrepreneurial experiences um, Mm -hmm. that you've been a part of. So in my mind, I just see Crystal cycling across Baltimore (laughs) with some pies, right? Yeah. Um, So, (laughs) and I was like, whoa. (laughs) So definitely want to, you know, talk about pie cycle and, you know, and black market and Mm -hmm. black sugar Mm -hmm. um, and just, just a bit about those entrepreneurial experiences. Absolutely. Um, so again, all of those things, when I was thinking about my pivot from entrepreneurship to artistry, I realized that I, it wasn't really too much of a pivot because all of those businesses were kind of based in community arts, you know, um, which is a big thing in Baltimore. We are very yes. much a community arts city. You are, thanks, definitely. <laughs> yes. And I love it. <laughs> yes. It's very organic. It's not forced. Um, we are definitely a people or a group of citizens that like to think, okay, how is what I'm creating benefiting um, the people around me as a whole or start striking up conversation with the people around me as a whole. And the two businesses that you mentioned, Karma Pop and Pie Cycle, Karma Pop was the very first one and that was a ice pop or popsicle business that was based on mid-Atlantic seasonality and working with urban farms, um, and black owned and minority owned farms. So, um, I definitely, yeah, thank you. So with that, that was actually Kickstarter back. So with that Kickstarter, we raised a little over $7,000. Cool. Yeah. And that's how the first, the first concept was built, um, through Kickstarter, got that funded, got a tricycle to sell my ice pops off of, and I was riding around the city selling my, uh, my popsicles off of the tricycle in like a good humor style fashion um and you know one of the backers on the kickstarter was like so we're just going to back you and you're only going to sell popsicles like for the summer and the spring like what about the rest of the year this is a lot of money to ask for for you know just a couple months out of the year and i was like no like i'm gonna make pie and i'm gonna ride around and sell them off the tricycle too and then it's gonna be called pie cycle (laughs) 
And they were like, oh, okay, fine, here's some money. And, you know, and then that was kind of how Pie Cycle was born. And Pie Cycle, um, because it was more, um, it wasn't as restrictive as the seasonality, but it was definitely something where it's like, okay, yes, I make pies, but I also make cakes and cookies and all these other things. And, you know, that's from fall to spring and then spring and summer it's popsicles so I had more of a time to like impact people with the baked goods so that was something that I became more known for I guess outside of Baltimore was my um my baked goods and child when I saw them pies <laughs> I was like why why, why? you know why I'm a pie person all day I know it's like a cake and we're talking pie. like regular pie no, so that's my other thing. You know, I always think about like trying to make every, you know, if you're going to be intentional about what you're eating and go out of your way outside of your home to have an experience, let's find a way to make it special. You know, let's find a way to make it like interesting. And sometimes it doesn't even have to be like super ridiculously interesting. You know, and I went through my periods. I definitely had my, my periods of certain things that I was really into, like my like activated charcoal period, and my, <laughs> my, my, my <laughs> purple yam period, you know. So it's like, oh, that's when she was really into ube. Like she had all these like I had all these like um, croissants with like purple yam um, fragapane in them. And, you know, just really trying to find ways to um engage people visually and taste-wise and also um, kind of step outside the norm of what was available in Baltimore you know it's a very working-class city it is Um, so we love you know even looking at Baltimore recipes um, local Baltimore recipes a lot of them are based in like depression era style things as well Mm -hmm. so which is fine you can make that delicious too but you know, like we, we definitely like we're like one of the places that has like those chocolate cakes with like all you need is there's no eggs in this cake. You know, all you need is olive or vegetable oil and cocoa. It's like, you know, like, yes, but I want some complexity. Like, how do I, you know, take a spin on that? So that was usually what I was doing. Um, just adding a little bit more um, interesting ingredients from around the world um, that I have been introduced to by friends or um chosen family um or even my travels and not like taking credit for it and being like you know i made it i made i discovered right you know (laughs) on my travels i discovered ube and no one has heard of it before me so um but yeah just kind of engaging people in that way around food with karma pop it really got me into the farming community Mm -hmm. um i even at that point was when i was doing karma pop i also was doing um, working at real food farm which is in Clifton Park. Yep, I know exactly where it is. So I was working there, so I got a real understanding of, like, urban farming and, or like, organic farming versus inorganic farming and, you know, composting, all those things. Um, And I managed their market, their mobile market. Okay. So I was, like, riding around with the truck and popping up with the truck with all the produce on it. So I really got to understand food access and um, inequality and sustainability in those ways, which really had an impact on my business. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So it was more of like a, to me, I like to think of it as a, a full on internship in a way mm. of like responsible business ownership, but also um, one that had like a, a heavy community interest, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, being as though you're a Baltimore native, mm. live in Baltimore still, <laughs> um, a lot has changed in the city. Yes. A lot of change where we are. Yeah. A lot of change around the world. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in cities. Especially in cities. Definitely want an understanding. I first of all I love Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Everybody's heard me say that. I absolutely love Baltimore. Um don't go there as often as I would like as mm-hmm. I would like to. I was actually there over the summertime. But definitely want an understanding from your perspective how the landscape um in, in Baltimore has changed and how that has impacted your work. From a food perspective, um, hmm. or even from a community perspective, I would design. say that the landscape has changed, and that it hasn't changed in a way. Uh huh. There you go. <laughs> it's changed, which can be a problem. Can be a problem, right? Depending on how you look at yeah. it. Who, you know, I think. Um, I think when I think about the first round of not first round but um the initial rides long long ago that changed the landscape of baltimore so when you're thinking about like the mlk assassination and the rise that happened in like 
what was that, 58? I believe around late 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, so was that 52 years ago? Mm-hmm. A lot of the houses that were damaged around that time are still boarded up today and they never you know and, wow. a, and a lot of white flight happened so when you think about yeah. like West Baltimore and East Baltimore mm-hmm. and Central Baltimore um, the city is very divided I mean it's been divided for for a long time for for maybe it's even extremely it's extremely divided, divided. Yeah. and we have our little spots of like quote diversity and I say quote diversity because <laughs> that's a diversity that's centered in whiteness mm-hmm. you know it's mostly white people but then you have like a few black people, a few Asian people, um, a pinch of Latinx people, and then it's diverse, right? Yeah. But the majority of the people in the space are white. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a problem because the city is 65% black. So to me, that's not diverse. Um, and I think a lot of times when people are always saying, when I'm talking about, oh, this is not diverse, that is not diverse, I'm like, well, what are you, what are you talking about? Are you looking at a number? Are you looking at, I'm like, yes, that's what diversity exactly. is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, so in the way that Baltimore has and hasn't changed, you know, with like white flight in West Baltimore way back when, and now, you know, the rise happening again, and, you know, now people want to kind of pour money into West Baltimore, use Baltimore um, as like their base um, for... Um, char- not charity, but making it seem like, you know, we're trying to work with the community, we're right. doing stuff. So you see now a lot more articles, like, in the Times and stuff, people talking about Baltimore. I think D.C., not D.C., on the Daily podcast, the New York Times Daily, they did, like, mm-hmm. a whole episode, I think, on, like, what it is, not what it is, like, but, like, crime in Baltimore. Did and they how, really? Yeah, it was, like, a hmm. three or four episode um, podcast okay. that was talking, that even went all the way back to, like, a mother and how she moved up from the South okay. to Baltimore and then her daughter and then that woman's son and that son ended up being murdered. So it was just like a whole backward story of like, what is, what is it like here? And what are, what are the things systemically mm-hmm. holding these people back and like mm-hmm. the corruption of the police and things of that nature. Um, so when I think about how Baltimore has changed, it has and it hasn't, there's a lot of opportunity for people who identify in a certain way or who intersect in a certain way. Um, and it's definitely become a place where people from, I guess DC and other places have come and moved to because it's a it's cheap for yeah. them. You know, if you're used to DC rent, if you're used to Way San Francisco than, rent, oh my if you're god, used to San New York rent, you know, yeah. Baltimore is like cheap. It's quote up and coming. It's a hotbed of activism, so you'll look like one of your woke friends. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you're the wokest. Oh my god, you're a rebel. You're moving to Baltimore, like. You know, it's all of that, all of those things. So, um, but right now what you see in Baltimore is a lot of um, food businesses popping up and a lot of restaurants popping up and um, getting um, a lot of shine and a lot of growth based on the inequities that have been in Baltimore for a long, long time Mm -hmm. systemically. So to me, it's, and I was someone who had who had, had to experience it to fully understand. You know, I was very much before my personal experience of opening my bakery, Black Sugar, which was my brick and mortar location that I opened after um, Pie Cycle kind of took off. You know, I was approached by a development company and they asked me to be in this brand new food hall that was opening in Baltimore called Our House. Mm-hmm. And... I was like, well, there aren't really other opportunities for me. The rents in the other places are kind of like similar to what it would be here, if not a little bit higher. I mean, mine was ridiculously high um, for a very small stall. And I was splitting the stall with some colleagues at the time who were coming down from Philly because I was like, I can't afford to do this. Like, I need somebody else to help me. Um, But you'll see it. We see a lot of that now. So a lot of like privatization of... um, spaces for that are used as food halls I guess and and food halls aren't necessarily like the best option for most businesses that are food based um, depending depending on how they're run and how they're managed and the level of experience that that development company or management company has with um, running a restaurant or running a food business that kind of can determine the success also the neighborhood that it's in Mm -hmm. Um, and the neighborhood that I was in was or is a poor white neighborhood um, that is slowly being bought up by that development company. So they're, you know, they essentially own like all of the buildings on the block, whether it's homes, row homes across the street from our house, which they own, 
or apartment buildings a block up, which they own, that have, like, the storefronts on the bottom of the apartment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, they own the land that the 7-Eleven is on, which is very problematic. Wow. <laughs> they don't own the 7-Eleven. They own the land Good that the 7-Eleven is on. Man. So what does that say about, like, you oh know? Oh, my gosh. So, um, yeah, oh I mean, that's, that's kind of what it is now. I think, again, when, you talk, when you're thinking about fractals and, like, everything that you see on a, a larger scale... You know, it actually starts on the smaller scale locally, and it just kind of replicates up, 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 up. What we see in the food industry as a whole is definitely being replicated here in Baltimore. And it's interesting because I feel like I have, like, a front row seat to it all from my personal experience, Mm -hmm. but also just from um, it taking places in cities like Baltimore and Detroit, you know, Mm -hmm. um, St. Louis. You know, it's just very, very interesting to me to just kind of watch it all unfold and as a black woman, see, like, the writing on the wall and feel like you're, like, Chicken Little, kind of, like, screaming about it, and everyone's like, okay, we hear you, relax. It's just going to happen. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're still going to scream. Yeah, but we're still going to scream, <laughs> we still, you know? We still, don't get it twisted. We're still going to scream. So, so the point being, like, yeah, the, the things that I see in the food landscape now, um, a lot of opportunity to those who have access to capital, um, who have the connections, and a lot of that is based in class and race. Um, so that means what? Those with a proximity to whiteness or those who are white with money. And that's, it has to, both of those things, it seems, in Baltimore are key. White and money. Because we have a large, poor white community in Baltimore yes, as well. Yes, that is real. And I think that, that you know, that they're not getting opportunities either. Yeah. You know, when we when you compare notes with, with poor white people in Baltimore and you're like, well, what's going on? That is what's happening. You know, yeah. it's very much like the wealthy and then the rest. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to pause really quickly. Yeah. So those who are um, just tuning in, um, I have the wonderful pleasure of chatting with Crystal Mack um, <laughs> from Baltimore. All right. She came down from Baltimore this morning, guys, to be on the show. Uh, this is Melissa L. Jones here with the Edible Activist Podcast mm. at The Line DC here on Full Service Radio. And so um, Crystal is known for many acknowledgments, but we actually just talked about um, her role as a um culinary artists but not restricted to those those terms because um, you know your work is is not linear you know it's mm-hmm. and fluid necessarily isn't a bad thing like you, you said you know you talked about everything being in real time yeah um, especially your, your perspective is in real time yes. you know and so she's had many entrepreneurial pursuits from karma pop to pie cycle pie cycle black market and has really um, at some point at one point really engaged with the urban agriculture community in Baltimore which is big and um, understood, you know, the aspects of farming and composting and that really impacted um, your food business and how mm-hmm. you thought about food as a whole um, and also just using food for social design. And, you know, I was reading um, when I was reading about you a bit before the show, um, I had because you and you are an artist. Let's just get that straight. Like you Thank are you. an artist. All right. <laughs> and you, you also indulge in what you call comestible, 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 comestible. I had to go and look that word up. Okay, <laughs> I don't know everything. I was like, what is this? No, I was like, oh, food. Okay. No, I mean, look, I recently did an event at a museum and the woman was like reading the intro and she was like, how do you say this? You know, like. Hey. Well, guys, I typically um, take a break, and I'm just putting that out there because I'm actually not going to take one. And sorry, Jack, I'm not taking one. He's like, okay, good. Because <laughs> the conversation is just flowing, and I just want to keep going. But, you know, going back to the, the question about food landscape, one thing that you have mentioned, um, Crystal, and I definitely want you to dive into this a bit more, or as much as you like, is, you know, that you are, you're mourning your, lo- your relationship to Baltimore and the food community. Yeah. You know, and so <laughs> what 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 does that mean? Like um for me it's again always changing and again yeah. like I said y'all are seeing that in real time. Yeah. Um I think there's a level so when we think about mourning and we think about grief and we think about loss um there is a change within us that you know when I close my bakery even though I fought to close it, and even though I wanted to move move on from that, it definitely was a, a bit sad for me. Yeah, you know, to yeah. me as a young working woman, and not that young. I mean, I'm gonna be 35 next year. Mm-hmm, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. younger. <laughs> um, I'm older than you, Crystal. You know, like, younger. <laughs> but, 
about that much though. This has been like a significant part of your life, working towards that end goal and then realizing like, wow, this end goal will either be, this will be the end of me if I hold on to this, if I stay here. Wow. And being like, okay, the one thing that I worked hard for and like, you know, I'm here, but it's just not the way that it's supposed to be. I need to move on and let that go. Um, When I let that go, when I walked away from the bakery, it changed me, you know? And also at that time, between that changing me, like a month, a month beforehand, my father died. And that changed me as well. And when my father passed away, I was being harassed to like come back into work by the management of the food hall. Like, you got to come back in. Like, you can't, you know, we, you are coming back in after the funeral, right? Like, when will you be back? Like, because you signed a contract saying you'd be open seven days a week, right? So we need you here. Um, but I, I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, like, if things are changing in this way and I have to change, that means I need to understand that I am going to have, I'm not going to be the same person after this, you know, I'm not going to be the same person. Um, and what will, what will that mean for my relationships around me, you know? So being as open as possible I can about where I am um, with my relationship to the city, to myself, um, to the things that I hold dear to me, like food and food industry, um, that. When I, when I think about that and how I'm, how I'm going about doing that, it, it is always changing. And I think about, um, I think about choosing who I engage with. And I think about being more intentional. And, yeah. you know, it's in 2000, I closed the bakery in 2017. And in 2018, I essentially just took a year off. And I took a job that I knew I would not have to, like, cook and like work and make food because to me I wanted to kind of reconnect with making food in a sacred practice of in a way of, of that and not making food um, to make a living you know and not making food in a way that was very transactional right. I wanted to do it on my terms I wanted to do it at home I wanted to do it um, with people that I felt were worthy of that and worthy of that level of intimacy um, and I wanted to really understand why I got into food in the first place and what was the thing about it that brought me joy and brought me peace and like brought me to my center. Um, and then in, in 2019, this year, I just really took the time to be more intentional, intentional about the things I put out into the world. And I think that was a part of the, the mourning process and the grief, um, really just examining what it was that I was mourning. I was mourning like the changes of my city and the familiarity that I thought I had with the food landscape here. Um, the changes within the industry as a whole, um, you know, a lot happened in food between then and now. That was like what, me too, and like right. in a personal level, like me and um, finding all of this success and then kind of walking away from that success and then people saying like, well, what are you up to now? Me saying nothing and them being like, oh, I'm sorry. Or like, you're not going to open another bakery or like, oh, you failed. And to me, I I didn't see it as those things, but that doesn't mean that I didn't internalize a little bit some of what they were saying. So to me, I realized I just had to, um, in the mourning process, in the grief process, recontextualize what it meant to be in food in the way that that was sustainable to me and made me feel good and made me feel as though the things that I was putting out into the world um, were actually changing it. Adding to the conversation, but changing it in a way. You know, I think a lot of times the things that um, we don't think are connected to food are actually the things that drive the food industry forward. And I really tried to, in the past like year, think about all of the things that intersect with my life on a day-to-day basis and how... Um, you know, some of some of the toxicity around that, those things that I can't control, and how can I have a conversation with other people in the food industry, or not, maybe not even in the food industry, how can I have a conversation with people, period, about the things that I see around me that are messed up? Mm. Um, and when I think about that, you know, I was actually having a conversation with a colleague the other day, and we were talking about, like, diversity of spaces. She... Um, she has a, a wine bar and I, we were having a conversation and I was saying to her, your wine bar is very white. Like <laughs> your wine bar is there very, it is. <laughs> your wine bar is very white. It's, been said. Um, it's not diverse. And, but then we were talking about her other, she has another space and restaurant and she was saying, yeah, you know, and the only, the more diverse 
of the three spaces that I have is a space that has food in it. And why is that? You know, food brings people together. So to me, I just started to think about like food as a tool to bring people together and address these issues that I was mourning and I was grieving over and understanding like I may feel alone in this, but maybe if I create work around this feeling of loneliness and this feeling of disconnection to the land, disconnection to my city, disconnection to um, the food community, the food industry, um, maybe I can find people who are like, you know what, I see what you're doing and I connect with that and that resonates with me because I'm feeling that way as well. And I recently shared online like, the fact that I am in this like ongoing grieving process. And so many people like reached out to me and were like, if you wanna talk or like, I feel the same way, I've been having these feelings too, thank you for being so vulnerable. I think that if we are more upfront and forward with how we um, are processing the things that we experience on a daily basis, we can allow each other to collectively heal, you know, and what does collective healing look like? I think that's the thing for me when I think about dismantling the food industry, um, like decolonizing it. It takes healing and it takes collective healing. And how are we kind of replicating the toxicity in ways that we don't even realize that we're doing Because we're a bunch of toxic people trying to dismantle our system. Right. Like, to me, (laughs) it's like we Mm -hmm. talk about things, like, in a very grassroots way when it comes to dismantling. You are so right, Crystal. But when you think about, like, if you're thinking of the industry itself as, like, a very old building and the foundation of that building is, like, supremacy and it's strong and that's the thing that's keeping it. strong it's not necessarily going to work from the top down to like dismantle. You kind of have to dismantle from the bottom, but how do you do that? I truly don't know. I'm still working it out. And I think that's the thing that, um, I know earlier you said activist, but I always like try to like correct people when they say that to Mm me because I don't think I'm an activist. Mm -hmm. I truly just think I'm an advocate. I'm Mm -hmm. a regular everyday person that, you know, to me, I have a, I have a view of activism being from Baltimore, my view of activism is very different from the national view of activism, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I think too often in the food space and also just in general, especially I got a front row seat of this to, to this, being from Baltimore around the time of the uprising, people take their identity and they use that as credentials for something that they are not doing. And I refuse to be someone that You know, I think I'm an advocate. I don't think I'm an activist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But oftentimes I feel in in this industry, in the food industry, we give people accolades for doing what they should be doing. We give them titles for doing what they should be doing. Like, this person is an activist. They are providing health insurance to their employees. (laughs) It's like, what? Let's uh, be clear. I'm not calling them activists. Like, oh, this person is an activist. I completely She get is it. literally just living her life yeah. as a black woman and speaking right. up because these things will be harmful to her and her people in Absolutely. the long run. And it's like she's an activist. And right. But you know what, too, you know? when I think about and this is this is coming from someone who did not have any prior experience or anything in food right Mm -hmm. so when I think about activism Mm -hmm. I think it's just something internally especially as black people because we've always been fighting for something you know and so you know when you hear edible activists everybody knows to play on words you know you might not be standing on the front line you know but I mean I completely understand I completely get what you're saying now it's kind of like to me when I think of um I literally just was talking about this book yesterday, um, How We Get Free. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, I've heard the, of that. Um, Columbia River Collective. Um, gosh, I'm a bit. That's okay. Her name, but Someone I can was share it later. About that. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's kind of just like understanding that um, the liberation of black women is not just for black. To me, so it's when I hear people like, oh, she's an activist, or like when I see people assign activism to a black woman that's being vocal and mm-hmm. it's like and even we just like okay but there's literally people out here in the street <laughs> marching getting arrested right like when i see people in baltimore getting arrested marching doing sit-ins and stuff like that and i'm on here making a, a post right. on facebook or instagram people are like she an activist and i'm like y'all are really i'm not an activist but to me it's like the liberation of black women i think the more people understand the liberation of black women is a liberation of people mm-hmm. of all of us mm-hmm. because we are the the most marginalized oftentimes period so to me it's like um when I think of it in that sense and when I think of um 
how we affect change in the food industry. Um, I'm happy that now we're starting to see more black women getting the recognition that they're deserving of and getting the roles that they're deserving of. Um, But I also understand that there's room for women like me who may not necessarily fit into um, the identity of chef, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's room for women like me who, for not even room for women like me. I'm just an example of a woman of the long line of women who came before me. Um, you know, I just did a talk, or not even a talk, I just did a presentation at the Walters Art Museum called Black Women Food and yes, Power. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. Oh, thank Let's you. talk about that. Oh my and gosh. Um, I had Dr. Psyche Williams Forsen, yes. mm-hmm. author of Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women Food and Power, hence the name of the mm-hmm. conversation, come and do a presentation. I did a presentation about my work. And then I had my friend Gabrielle. She came and did a conversation about her work and what she does. And the whole point of the work was to honor um, this woman, Sibby Grant. She was an enslaved cook at One West, Mm -hmm. which was the home that had been renovated by the Walters Art Museum. So it was essentially um, her and um, several other slaves living and working in the house. And I wanted to create some work that honored them. So the work um, was programming and in the form of a conversation and presentation and artist talk and then an installation that I created in the dining room um, of the home. And my whole point of creating that conversation, not only to honor Sibby, but to show people that, you know, when we talk about, or when I talk about decolonizing the food industry and um, really getting to the root of what working with food originally looked like, you know, we have a very colonized view of of food and what it looks like. Like I said, you know, I hate wearing a chef's jacket, right? It sucks to me. It's hot. I mean, I understand if I'm working in a restaurant, that's the thing that you should be wearing. But when we think about the history of that, what is that rooted in? It's rooted in French tradition. Right. And when they yes. created those traditions, mm-hmm. they were not thinking of black women. Mm-hmm. That's just not even like in a exactly. racist way. That's just not what they were thinking. They were centering white men. So to me, I started to think, okay, well, like, who are the women that resonate with me deeply in their work? Like, what does that look like? Um, that's like Verda Mae Smart Grosvenor, that's Tony Tipton Martin, that is um, Nozaki, Nozaki Shang, mm-hmm. the author or the the playwright of Building, not Building, excuse me, the playwright of um, For Colored Girls Who mm-hmm. Consider Suicide. She has a cookbook. You know, that's one of my favorite cookbooks oh. that I'm always talking to everybody about. I'm like, do you know this cookbook? I did do not you know, know that. this cookbook? To me, all of these different women, Maya Angelou and all of her cookbooks, of Leah course. Chase and her cookbooks. When I think about all of these women and their cookbooks, they're not in the they're not on the bestseller list. They're not like the traditional, but these are the ones that, you know, allow us to think about food as a lifestyle, food as a tool for social design. These women use food, you know, to connect with people in their travels. That's literally what the bulk of um, vibration cooking and if Ooh, I can I cook, you know God can by Nozaki Shang. Mm. That is what the core of those books are about. It's about traveling um, as a black person through the, like, or even traveling through the diaspora and really connecting with the people there based on food experiences um, and really finding your identity based in food. Yeah. And when you think about all of these women and how they intersect with food, they were brilliant. Absolutely. You know, so when you think about how we can't fit into the box of chef because we weren't meant to fit in the box of chef because we see food as so much more than a capitalist consumerist based thing. It's mm-hmm. a lifestyle. It's something that's passed down through us. It's something that's within our ancestry. It's just it's what it is what it is. Exactly. So to me, I understand that I don't necessarily need to. Um, be in a restaurant to make powerful, meaningful food experiences for people to enjoy. But I also understand that um, I want to live, right? I want to survive off the things that I create. So how do I do that in a way that is nurturing to myself and my community, um, but also um, doesn't add or further the narrative of um, the very colonized and very... um, I don't, the very colonized food industry Mm -hmm. that we're a part of Mm -hmm. that doesn't acknowledge black women in the way that they should unless they fall into the role of um, a restaurant chef. And if you don't fall in that role, then what you're you're seen as what a a blogger or in a reductive way, which I don't think there's anything wrong with blogging, especially as a black woman. Of course. I think, you know, in all the places in the world that we can have a voice is online. 
And I think it's important, especially when you think about um, Afrofuturism mm -hmm. and when you think about futurescaping and using like the internet and food as a tool for preservation, I think it's very important that we take up space online. You know, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's very important that we take up space online because, you know, in a way, when I think of everything that's ever been shame, um, used to shame people that don't fall into the colonization of food, right? Like, oh, you're not a chef, you're a home cook, you're less than. Oh, you're not a like an actual food writer being published in a uh, Food and Wine or New York Times or Bon App, yeah. then you're a blogger. Well, when we think about that, we have to think about the real conversation, which is access and equity, right? Hello. All of these things are controlled by, Hello. yeah, by a center of whiteness. Hello. Yeah. And when we think about that, you know, and the shame that's tied to those things, why are we being shamed for, you know, being simple little bloggers, you know, and why are we internalizing that? I, I when I did that event at the Walters and the woman was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll present you as blah, 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 this, that, the other, you know, blogger or whatever. And I was like, Hold what? Wait, <laughs> right. But even in that, like when I was like, wait a minute, blogger. But then I was like, well, girl, you do journal online and that is called blogging. But why am I internalizing this in such a negative way? Because I understand the language, I understand language. And I understand exactly. how language is used against us to belittle certain things that we do. And even though that wasn't her intention, it really got me thinking about how we use language and, you know, how can I decolonize my um, actions so that it doesn't affect me, regardless of what someone says. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, okay, she won't call me a blogger. The reality is what I'm doing um, is an aspect of Afrofuturism and pr preservation, yeah. right? Yeah. Because that's the idea that, like, black people will be present in the future. Black people exist in the future. Mm -hmm. And what is the future now heavily based in? It's heavily based in, like, the Internet and online, mm -hmm. you know? And we're constantly being erased out of conversation. So yeah. I think it's interesting to um, – I think we should – one of the things that we should be doing is embracing um, and making space for black women who are creating food and um, – doing a lot of preservation and food writing online because we have to think about access and how that could be the only way that they have a way to get their ideas out and mm -hmm. have a platform. Yeah. And they're building them themselves, you know? <laughs> you know, they're building it Look themselves. Look at me. <laughs> yeah. You're building too much writing, and, and, but still. <laughs> right. And when we know, and we know, like, time has proven and history has proven that when black women do create spaces, we uplift other women. Yes, we Not do. even just black women, we uplift everybody. everybody. Whether have, that's directly or they see us and they're inspired to so do something. I have so many different women supporters of this platform yes, of all you know? races. Yeah, all exactly. Races. So, <laughs> again, going back to the idea that mm -hmm. the liberation of black women mm -hmm. is the liberation of all people. Um, wow, wow. Well, I only just, I just have a few more minutes. Yeah, yeah, I'm so, sorry. Oh my goodness. No, you're fine, girl. You could just sit <laughs> here and drive this car. We did talk I'm about sorry. food. <laughs> That's okay, because you're coming back. You're yeah, coming back. I'm, I'm you're coming back. Do you, I, I have one um, one final question before yeah. we get into, actually, I have several other final questions, but I only have time to ask one more final question. <laughs> but, um, but no, the importance of, of language um, mm -hmm. is super, 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 um, super imperative and you know one of the reasons even more when I started this platform you know I obviously did it for a number of reasons but the biggest one is because I didn't think there was space for us to share our narratives mm -hmm. and now even more so it's like I want us to be able to control those narratives yes. mm -hmm. um, and because extraction is real you yes. know, because Ooh, we've been extracted yes. for a very, yeah. very, very, I mean, when it comes to our narratives, our, you know, storytelling data, yeah. <laughs> I've been extracted from that. Yeah. Um, so I definitely want this to be the place where people can come back and say, no, because the here is where real stories happen. Yes. You know, nothing yeah. is sugarcoated. Yeah. Um, so that's extremely important. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that. But Looking at, and you guys, she's going to shout out her um, Instagram in just a few moments, but really quickly, you have like 30 seconds for this because oh, looking at, I mean, looking at your work, mm -hmm. just going on your Instagram page, you know, looking at yourself online, like how you craft, you know, your, your plates and, and your meals. I mean, very intentional 
did you ever feel like there because you don't see that for for a black woman crystal you do not you don't see at least i don't see mm-hmm. it you know I feel, I feel like there's always this association for black people and comfort food you know black people and um like we can never be associated with um you know um anything else other than comfort food mm-hmm. or you know the the mac and cheese and this and that and the other mm-hmm. did you ever feel because your work is very unique did you ever feel that there was a space for you to create did you ever or did you ever get the um the any remarks or anything of saying like oh um i've never seen anything like this coming from a black woman Oh, Did yeah. You ever? Not even directly like that, but very underhanded, like mm-hmm. like very like slick in the way they would say those things. And no, I didn't feel like there was a space for me. And I was I think that's the story of my whole experience as a creative. Like, I've never felt there was a space for me. I never felt I felt like I always had to make it on my own. And that yeah. was before I really got through the experiences that I got to and realized, like, the limitations that society sets up for you as a black woman. Um, even and then I was just like, it's just hard to be a young creative, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not really making that connection to um, my identity and how those things might have made it a little bit harder. Yeah. But I, I felt like I had to carve my own space out for myself. And again, there are I think there are women out there doing those things. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. but we just don't. We got again think about who's showing who what exactly. and what roles they're putting us into exactly. and what you know and the proximity, not only the white whiteness proximity um, portion but also the proximity to um, major cities like the major city privilege, mm. right? Like there's probably a woman in the deep deep south doing the same thing, no doubt, you know. But no we doubt. don't, e- you know what I mean, we don't, right? No but we don't even know. Doubt. But I bet you if she was in New York. And she was working at some restaurant yeah. that was like very hip and very cool. We would know about her. We would see her everywhere all the time. It's just truly about um, understanding the privileges that allow us uh, the visibility. Like, yes, we are now getting into a space where we have more representation. But I have found and I see that the representation that I've been seeing is very much again another fractal of what's happening at a smaller level right when we do see um, acknowledgement and praise of black people in food um, very much very often it is black men Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. when we do see women getting praised in food most oftentimes it's when they are an an elder right Mm. we want to give people the the flowers when they almost gone when they in the wheelchair cooking you know Leah Chase yeah. and Edna yeah. Lewis mm-hmm. but where is the acknowledgement and recognition for women that are doing amazing things now I mean I think we are doing that we're moving more towards that direction like Mashama I think so Bailey too. and um, you know other amazing women but I think that we really have to understand in order to make change and change um, change systems that don't serve us or create systems that do serve us, we have to look at what is not working and how we have been kind of conditioned to repeat the same actions. What's that? What's, what does Audre Lorde say? The master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. Ooh. We can't keep acting like, you know, we can't keep going about social justice in the traditional sense. We do have to be more radical. And I think um, I'm going to slide in real quick. One person that I think is doing that that has helped change me is Ashton Berry okay. Um, of okay. Resistance Serve okay. and Radical Exchange. Um, yes. I went to that conference. I want to go. Serve. You I have go. to go. I want to well, go. Well, take us now, not to like bump her up like <laughs> no, that. No, I want to go. But it is in I February. Go. I think it's like the first or second week of February. In New Orleans, right? Yeah. And I, I know go. that they have a dinner with Omar. Um, I Omar saw that. Tate. I looked at everything. And I think it's going to be really yeah. cool. But that changed my life. Mm. That changed my whole I'm telling you, this sounds real lame and like whatever, but my practice is evolving and growing, but it wouldn't be at this point evolving and growing where it is if I had not gone there. Wow. Um, It just gave me a lot of like perspective. We went to Whitney Plantation, like, you know, we really understood how the root of hospitality mm-hmm. was very much, especially as a, a black person mm-hmm. in the industry, was very much tied to like, plantation slavery and the roles that everyone had i have so much learn i mean i have so much learning to do i'm i have i know look we're all learning together i I don't even know i don't have the answers we're all learning together if you are that woman in a deep 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 south right and you just so happen to be listening to this podcast or something like 
DM me because I yes. want to get to those. I want to get to those stories. I want, and that is the goal. That is the goal. Mm-hmm. Crystal, girlfriend, thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. This was an amazing conversation. I'm so happy. Thank you for having me. I'm a pleasure. Excited. To Where can they find you online? Uh, my Instagram is at Crystal C Mac. That's K R Y S T A L C M A C K. Mac like the truck. Um, and my design studio, my yes. comestible design studio. <laughs> um, I Instagram. Can I come visit one day? Yeah, it's in my house. It's a 105 year old house awesome. in Reservoir Hill. Okay. <laughs> yeah, come on over. But it's uh, um, at absence.of. That is that Instagram account. So, yeah, you can find me online there. Okay, I got to do this real quick before Jack like, really boots me out. Okay, so we're going to do a rapid fire, right? <laughs> so, Crystal, what is your favorite veggie? Ooh, it changes, but right now... It, <laughs> in real time. Celery, celery, <laughs> celery. I know it's everything in real time, y'all. Celery. Favorite fruit? <sighs> Favorite fruit. Right now, I'm really on a Granny Smith kick. Okay, now. Yeah. Sweet, spicy, sour, salty. Spicy. Spicy. Spicy for your ricey. Yeah, that's right. Last artist you listen to in your playlist? Ooh, last artist. That's a hard one. I'm trying you just stream. Well, I do stream, but I also make... I also you make do. playlists you for make people playlists. to like listen to that are like based on my mood. Um, <laughs> this is how I'm feeling today. This yeah, is what this is how get. I'm feeling today. It looks like the last thing that I listened to whoop, was one of my playlists, and the top of that was Billie Holiday. So there you go. Oh, nice. I'll be seeing you by Billie Holiday. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much again, Crystal. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Melissa. All right. Peace, y'all. Bye, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We are here live on Full Service Radio every Wednesday at 11 a.m., where you can catch today's episode on fullserviceradio.org, as well as iTunes and Spotify. Be sure to follow me at Food Talks in Color on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Are you an edible activist? Sure you are. Come join me on the show. I would love to feature you. Just shoot me a DM on the gram. Peace and blessings all. And remember, there is no culture without agriculture.